Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast, so some of the slides may be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube channel. This is Testing G Suites with Mail Sniper, presented by Matt Toussaint and me, Sierra. But thanks for being on, and we really appreciate you guys and spending your Tuesday afternoon with us, your lunch. It is Taco Tuesday, so after this, we actually are going to go have office lunch tacos. Sorry, Matt. I wish you could come. (laughs) (laughs) But And if you guys were here, we would invite you all to Taco Tuesday. But uh, if you got your tacos, then go ahead and have your lunch, and we will get started. Thanks, Matt. Well, it's good to have you all with us um, in this webinar on Tuesday. Uh, it's evening for me, but I imagine for, well, it looks like we have a smattering of folks from all over the place. So uh, whether it's morning, night, evening, um, three years ago where you're at, welcome. Uh, it's good to have you. Um, so you already introduced me, so I won't really go into that at all. But um, this, this webcast is essentially on some of the things that we've experienced and seen on given tests. Uh, so we actually did some updates recently to uh, the mail sniper tool that Bo Bullock wrote uh, based on some things we needed to be able to accomplish during a test. Specifically, uh, one of our customers was using G Suites and uh, for, for their mail and, and those kinds of things. And we wanted to do some attacking against it. When you're doing an engagement, just in general, um, starting from the external side, there's a couple things that you almost always see in place. And well, email is ubiquitous, and it's definitely one of those. So having the ability to um, continuously and iteratively test against mail suites and mail applications is quite a bit of uh, 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 extra capability to have with you when you go into each one of the engagements. When doing some of this testing, though, occasionally you'll stumble into things that just feel weird. And uh, this is a little bit of a story of that, uh, finding things like 2FA opt-outs that we just didn't expect to have happen or didn't even know could happen. And just doing a little bit of reverse engineering kind of shows that. Uh, so when we go into this, I'm going to talk first through uh, a little bit of why you want to do this, what you're getting. Uh, then we'll see some of Mail Sniper in works. I'll try to do a live demo. We'll see if it's uh, see if the demo gods want to play nicely with us today, and um, we'll kind of go from there. Okay. So email is ubiquitous. It's all over the place, and it also provides a substantial opportunity because if we can get say usernames out of email, and we can use it maybe as a password guessing opportunity and maybe users have bad passwords or whatever the situation might be. At the end of that, you might have legitimate user credentials, legitimate passwords, you might be able to log into email, you might be able to reuse those credentials other places. Oftentimes email is tied in directly to the domain environment, which means that if you've got username and password there, it's almost guaranteed to be some kind of access opportunity when moving into the internal environment, especially if you're doing say an external engagement and trying to pivot internally. On the other hand, even in an internal assessment, so if it's an internal penetration test, and we start from the internal and we end the internal, that's all we're doing, email still might be a legitimate place to go after, might be a good place to target, because it's already there, and you might not have any access when you start off as an internal penetration test, and if the environment is, say, really solid, you still need to be able to try something. And email, it being always there and being really a useful tool for us, uh, because, well, users and passwords are involved with logging in. We are seeing some 2FA these days, it's two-factor authentication, and when that's implemented, then you might be able to get the username and password, but you might not actually be able to log into the email account. 
even in those situations though, email is still very useful for us because if we can get the right usernames and passwords, the right credentials, we might be able to use those uh, somewhere else that maybe the users reuse those passwords as well. Uh, we see synchronization of passwords and users reusing their password from one place to another uh, almost as ubiquitously as we see email in play. So if we find, say, a password to a, uh, an email uh, system, it might also be the password to some kind of web application that we might be trying to gain access to um, during the course of the test. That might be the goal, that might be the objective, maybe the sensitive data that we're trying to see if it's at risk is held on that application. Getting usernames and passwords might facilitate that for us really well. Also in penetration testing and hacking in general, um, it's a lot easier just to go in the front door than it is to write zero days and break things. And if we're hamstrung because that's a requirement, let's say that all of our uh, tactics, all of our capability are really focused around the concept of, is there a zero day out there? Or is there a unpatched vulnerability that I can exploit in order to gain access to systems? If that's the case, we might not be able to do iterative work we're providing continuous value. Uh, this past year has been a little different. I'm not sure if that's, that trend's going to continue. It certainly seems like it. Uh, we've had a lot of releases and disclosures of vulnerabilities, especially, say, the Shadow Brokers release in April of last year. So code execution and exploitation directly into systems is certainly something we're seeing in play. But if you were to go back two years, there's not necessarily an overwhelming majority of exploits. The last time that we had something as amazing as the uh, say, Eternal Blue exploit for MS17010 would have been uh, 2008 with the, uh, the uh, MS08067 vulnerability that Configure used as a worm. Uh, but if, we, if we're required to have those things, if we're waiting for some kind of zero day to come out before we can actually do testing, well, we might not be able to continuously do that. So to have something that's always there and is a consistent place to begin is absolutely useful for us while testing. Um, Egypt, one of our other testers that we uh, picked up recently, likes to uh, call it authenticated code execution by design. Because if you can log into systems, oftentimes those systems have some kind of extensibility built into them. And so you can use that system in a way that's essentially intended, but not really intended and gain access to the device that way. Say it's a WordPress website. If you've got real credentials and you log in, you can write PHP code into the system. You can run things, uh, which is really powerful. So we definitely want to find usernames and passwords because oftentimes that might be the best way for us to engage the rest of the environment. And G Suite helps us out here too. Uh, specifically, if we are just starting out, we likely don't have usernames at all or passwords at all just yet. The email system might be a good way to find those. We might do password spraying or password guessing to see if we can't stumble upon a password. That's somewhat effective, especially against large organizations with many users. But to do that, we first need to have a user account to try to guess against. This tends to be much easier for us to enumerate because a lot of these systems are built by design to provide us with just some signaling that we can take advantage of. For example, if you take a look at the screen right now, this is Google. It's the accounts.google.com. If you go there and you try to log in with, say, an email account from a different domain, in this case, Matt at blackhills.com, uh, Black Hills InfoSec, that is, it'll then respond with a message um, that then lets us know to type in the password next. This means that that email account actually exists there. And if we take a look here at this slide, you can see here 
the verbose error messaging that we kind of get as a result. So in one case, we try to log in with a real email address. It then takes us to here, type in your password. Whereas in the other case, if we type in an email address that's fake, in this case, blah, blah, at blackhillsinfosec.com, we haven't hired anybody named blah, blah. Uh, so it's not there. It's not a real email account. And it says, um, let's see, this GoToWebinar thing's a bit in front of it. It says, couldn't find your Google account. And so we can kind of see here from the way that um, the messaging is happening, what that means. It means that there's actually a user there when you try Matt. There isn't one when you try blah, blah. And this kind of messaging is what we might call user enumeration. So here we can identify users just by taking a look at what the signaling is and what the difference in those messaging actually look like and observe those responses. We'll see this in play a little bit further on. We start looking at reverse engineering, some of the communication that Google's actually doing in order to bypass things like the captchas. Hey, Matt, I have a question. And you might talk about this later, but like when you're doing that, like trying to figure out if a user is real or not, does that flag anything in Google? Do they notice that? Do they freak out? Absolutely. That's a perfect segue into this slide right here. So when we try to do this against Google, let's say that we try to guess uh, user blah, and then blah one, blah two, blah three. Eventually what Google does is it watches to see if there's multiple requests for accounts that don't exist. And then it wants to make sure that you're actually a real person and it will present you with a captcha. This isn't really a defense mechanism but it does kind of put a foil into our goal here, right? Because so it would just slow you down. It, it, well, it might. We'll take a look at how to get around it slowing you down as well, because anything can be defeated. Um, but the goal of the capture here is to tell if you're a human. It's not actually there to uh, prevent the system from working. So it's not really a defensive mechanism, but it is a bit of a hiccup. Um, so of course, we don't really want to type in every possible first name or last name or whatever the email address uh, format is into it by hand in order to identify the user accounts, especially if you're doing this against a large enterprise where there might be thousands of different users. That gets really tedious very fast. Uh, so you want to automate this, which means you might want to script something to go through it. It also means that whatever that script is, it's going to have to handle those captures because Google's presenting those when you get a couple in a row, say, email address attempts that don't exist. If we're trying to guess against a big user list to see if any of those email addresses do exist, most of the responses that we're going to get, of course, are going to be, no, that user isn't here, move on. Which means we're going to get a lot of these CAPTCHAs. We could write a program to read the CAPTCHA and respond to it, right? pass the Turing test, but um, we're hackers here. So why do that at all when we can just cheat instead? And this brings us kind of back to the observation thing. So when we were looking to see if we could identify users, we're interacting with the system, and then we're looking to see if the responses that it gives us are different when we provide it good information versus when we provide it invalid or bad information. Because of that, we were able to see if the user account was real or if it was fake. It also might mean that we're able to see when we're presented with a CAPTCHA. So we take a look at this, and uh, to, to get this information, what we did is we took our um, web browser, and we intercepted the requests with Burp Suite. So what you can kind of see here is um, highlighted is a get request there to that CAPTCHA. But if you look under the post request right below it, there are what, two, four, five of them. Each of those is sending a post message to the lookup API for Google, accounts to google.com. 
and it's trying to look up blah one, blah two, blah three, et cetera, those user accounts. And then eventually it's prevented with this CAPTCHA. If we take a closer look here though, and this is pulling apart one of the, uh, uh, the request response to a lookup request here, when we're presented with a CAPTCHA, it presents us with this JSON formatted information. Uh, and one of the pieces of information there is the gf.alr, and it's given here a value of five. Now this value changes depending on what kind of response is happening. So if it's a CAPTCHA that comes back, it presents you with a five. But if it's a legitimate user and it's trying to send you the password field so that you can try to log in, that value changes to a one. So it means if we're just observing, we're making these requests, the ALR value change, whenever we see a one, we know that we've found a user. Whenever we see a five, we know we've been presented with a CAPTCHA. This doesn't quite let us bypass the CAPTCHA just yet, because the first thing we need to know in order to bypass the CAPTCHA is, well, A, is it there? So we've got that part down now. By looking at the request messaging and the differences between them, we can see when we've got a CAPTCHA. Now we just have to figure out how to deal with it. When doing this during a test, we made a bunch of different requests to Google in order to see what the other ALR codes could be. Uh, so if one's a direct login, uh, there's also an error code uh, for a two, five for a CAPTCHA. But one of the ones that we found most interesting is an ALR code of 13. So that's a login redirect. There's a lot of systems out there like say um, Duo Two Factor. Yeah, there it is. Like Duo Two Factor. And so with Duo, what it does is it says, okay, you're using G Suites, but your login portal, your login window is actually going to be Duo. So when you try to log in, what Google will do is it'll send you to the Duo login page so that you can finish your login authentication there and use the two-factor authentication and all that kind of stuff. When we were doing a test for one of our customers and we were essentially username enumerating with this technique, looking at those ALR codes, we noticed, and they were using Duo two-factor, so uh, ALR codes of 13 were expected, but we were noticing some that were responding with an ALR code of one, which means just like we kind of saw before, the standard Google login. Let me jump back to that slide. So this here, this is an ALR code of one, that user account's there and it's bringing to Google's password type in field. If we get a one, we know that that login redirect didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Maybe the system has been configured improperly. There's a lot of things that could be the result of it, but what it does mean for us practically from an attack and exploitation perspective is that we immediately know that whatever that user is, however that system's been orchestrated or set up, it's not using Duo's login system. Which means, let's say that we're trying to get access to an email account. We might be doing password guessing attacks against a user in order to try to see if we can't guess their password. If we guess the password of a user who's using two-factor, it's still useful for us because we could use those passwords in a different place that doesn't have two-factor. Certainly information that we might want, but if we can find accounts that aren't opting into two-factor in the first place, and if we can guess correctly a password for one of them, we know that that password and username are going to work for us when we log into that system, when we authenticate into that device as that user. Now, this came to us as a complete surprise. We didn't actually expect to find it, but while we were building out MailSniper to be able to do user enumeration automatically, as well as password spraying against email accounts, we kind of stumbled upon this and it was confusing at first until we started to pull it apart. And then we noticed this. And really that kind of moving back to the signaling as opposed to just working with a tool and hoping that things work or doing things 
uh, manually or automatically. Uh, going back to the signaling to see what's actually happening behind the scenes, sometimes you find really weird stuff that way. You might find something that was just fully unanticipated. And in this case, that, that's exactly what we found. Um, so even more reason to look at that. Now, going back to bypassing that CAPTCHA though, right? Because it's all fine and dandy that we can now see uh, terminal R codes. We now know when there is a CAPTCHA, when there's a login redirect, when we have a password to the user account that was correct, right, a one, or a user account that wasn't, an alert code seven's returned for that. But we still have this CAPTCHA to deal with. There's a couple ways we can fix this though. The CAPTCHA isn't intended as a defensive mechanism which means we don't actually have to pass the Turing test to bypass it. The way Google's trying to decide when to present a CAPTCHA is after uh, successive authentication attempts, or not authentication, excuse me, successive lookup attempts against accounts, Google accounts, that don't exist from an IP address, which means if we can send these lookups from multiple different IP addresses, we won't be presented with a CAPTCHA because Google thinks they're completely unrelated to each other. There's a tool called Proxy Cannon that you can use to do this. What Proxy Cannon does is it spins up a bunch of EC2 cloud instances on Amazon, and uh, it works pretty well under the free tier too, because you're not really doing anything too heavy. And essentially, after, after it spun those instances up, it um, adds them all as interfaces to the system that's running Proxy Cannon, and then that system will rotate through all of those interfaces when sending messaging out. You can also have it automatically spin up new instances over time too. And ProxyCannon is a great way to do this. If you want more information on ProxyCannon, we did do a blog. This was done by Carrie. And that link there takes you to uh, the Black Hills blog where it talks more about using ProxyCannon. Uh, but in this one, we're gonna talk more about MailSniper. So the other way you can do this is you could use some kind of redirector. Uh, that little one-liner there is a SOCAT redirector that takes in a packet coming in on one port, in this case, 9090 and then it redirects it to a different system on a different port. In this case, accounts.google.com on port 443, which is just HTTPS. Um, if you're interested in SOCAT, and SOCAT sounds cool to you, there's also a blog on the SANS pen testing blog uh, that has some more interesting use cases for SOCAT. It's a great tool. Uh, but we're gonna combine SOCAT here in order to create redirectors with MailSniper to have mail sniper switch between different redirectors in order to bypass this CAPTCHA. So here is a quick um, demo. I'm gonna do a live one here in just a second. But if that one fails, this is what it's supposed to look like. Um, and so we extended mail sniper specifically to be able to take advantage of all of these processes. Um, it now has the invoke, uh, it's not Gmail enumeration, it's, it's user enumeration. Here, let me uh, just jump to the demo. So um, um, it's invoke Gmail or username harvest Gmail. And uh, we can use this in order to find out users that are there. Now, but to do this though, we do need to give it either um, an email address or a file full of those email addresses. If I cat this file that I've got set up for the demo here, um, I've just got three email accounts in there, Matt at uh, Black Hills, AAA at blackhillsinfosec.com and John. Now we'd expect, of course, not to see AAA as an actual user account. So when we run this, it finds us the users that were in that list, but only the ones that were actually successful. Um, now this module, due to the, the whole CAPTCHA thing that, um, there we go, that Google's got, and of course it's got help built into it as well, it talks about what it does and how it works. 
Also, if you were trying to copy real quickly that uh, SOCAT command, it's built in the help file, so that you know that it's right there. Um, and it also has examples here. So if I look up the examples, it shows you a couple different ways to run it. Now, this one here is the interesting one because it will automatically, it automatically has a flag, a switch built into it to allow you to switch and rotate through proxy hosts. So if you set up that SOCAT redirector, let's say you're using DigitalOcean or Vulture or Amazon, and you spawn up a couple different um, virtual private servers, just IP addresses on those systems, and you run that SOCAT command on each one of them, you can now list them off as proxy hosts here, comma separated. What MailSniper will do is it'll automatically rotate between each one of those IP addresses while it's sending out those requests. This makes Google think that those requests aren't associated with each other, and it'll bypass that capture for us automatically. It'll also identify whenever it gets an alert code of five. Because if we were guessing against user accounts, but then we were eventually presented with a capture, even though we're kind of bypassing some of them here by rotating through, let's say that we were, we were guessing too fast or for whatever reason Google did present us with a caption. If the email account we were trying to guess at that time when we received an ALR code of five, if we don't know that we got a caption and that was a real email account, we'd miss it because we'd skip over it as the system continues to go through. MailSniper will automatically identify when there is a caption. And if you're using proxy hosts, it'll rotate through to the next one and try it again. If you're not, or even if you are using proxy hosts and you still got presented with a CAPTCHA, it'll see that CAPTCHA and it'll wait for a little while. Because the other thing Google does, it presents the CAPTCHA if it sees successive requests to the, uh, the sign-in API, the lookup API. But it only observes those re successive requests within a certain time window. So if you wait 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and then try it again, you won't be presented with that CAPTCHA. So what, what uh, MailSniper does is first with proxy host, it tries to rotate through automatically in order to, uh, to avoid that. And secondly, identify when a CAPTCHA has been presented and wait for it to go away before trying again, which gives us bypass to both of those different suites, which is nice. So these are the things that MailSniper kind of does. Uh, it looks for those ALR codes and will rotate to those proxy hosts, but it also supports password spraying attacks too. Um, it's the other module that comes with it. It's invoke, um, well, we'll see it here in just a second. I forgot what I named the darn thing. Uh, so it also supports password spraying. Because the, the goal at the end here is to end up with user accounts, real ones, that'd be nice, and passwords as well. So both of those things against G Suite are now implemented. And the password spraying, of course, is going to have the same kind of issue. If you make too many uh, sign-in requests, Google will also present you with a CAPTCHA. That's the only thing it does to kind of defend. But again, a CAPTCHA in this case isn't really meant as a defensive mechanism. It's just a uh, it's just there to make sure that you're a human and not a script, and we can cheat our way around it anyways. Uh, so what it means, though, is there's no real defenses against password spraying, uh, user enumeration that are built directly into G Suite and enabled by default. You have to be a little careful with password spraying and guessing, because it's possible to integrate these systems with, say, an accurate domain and have account lockout policies associated. But one of the nifty things that we tend to experience in, uh, in practice with G Suite over Outlook. And, and again, um, MailSniper already supports EWS, um, Exchange Web Services, and OWA, and the, uh, the user lookup and the identification of the mail server and stuff that we're kind of seeing here with G Suite. All of those things work in Microsoft as well. It's not, it's not just Google, it's, uh, it's kind of everybody. So we're it's, not uh, picking on Google. This, this works <laughs> well, we on are. lots of we're just picking on everybody. I think uh, Black Hills is <laughs> getting bullied in general. Um, um, but we like, we like you, everyone. Especially you, Google. 
And the thing is, Google or Microsoft could absolutely choose to put a protection in place that makes this harder to do. Um, the, the fact that we see signaling here that is specifically different when you're using a user that is there versus isn't there, uh, different ALR codes for CAPTCHAs and all of that stuff. We took a look at what was being sent back and forth and we were able to extrapolate that. But there's no reason that these things need to be unique in the first place. So Google and Microsoft could certainly do better, uh, but it turns out we have to put a little bit extra defense on our own and shoulder some of that burden ourselves because those systems, those things, those defenses might not be integrated by default. And some of the things we might perceive as a defense, like this CAPTCHA, might not even actually be there. It might not actually be in place as a defensive mechanism either. So just some things to be aware of um, in your own environments, in your own experience. The other nice thing in practice that we see with G Suite is it tends to be less commonly integrated with the domain than OWA and, and uh, say Microsoft Outlook style uh, email. Because of course, that just kind of shims into the domain directly. Uh, because of this, with G Suite, we also often are more capable of password guessing over password spraying. With a password spraying attack, we pick one, uh, uh, one password maybe, and we take a list of users. Let's say we have a thousand users we enumerated with mail sniper against the domain. And we guess that password against all the users. Right now, a really good one to try would be summer uh, 2018. <laughs> Sounds like a joke, but it's, it's really not. Uh, I mean, the most common password in It's funny because it's true. Password, no, it's, it's absolutely true. And this works for us against Fortune 500 companies on a regular basis. Um, but with G Suite, often we don't actually have to limit ourselves to password spraying. Now, the goal of password spraying is to avoid the account lockout. With guessing attacks, we might be able to guess a full password list against every one of the users. Full password list against the full user list and look for anybody who's got uh, even remotely bad passwords. And with uh, G Suite, we can often do this as well. Also in our experience, accounts.google.com is really, really, really fast. Um, so while online password guessing attacks are generally limited by bandwidth, and this is as well, um, guessing against G Suite does go exceptionally quickly uh, versus some other protocols like uh, say SSH tend to be a little bit slower um, to do password guessing, online password guessing attacks against, uh, which is another nice thing for us. Uh, so here's a couple things about uh, invoke username harvest. This is the help file. Um, since it's PowerShell, the help tends to be built directly in, so we just kind of put it in there, and it's nice. Um, here's with the examples again. Hey, Matt, you, we have a couple questions. Um, can you use the similar method by bypassing Google's suspicious searching, Google dorking CAPTCHA? Oh, I imagine this is for like uh, a Google API key-based searching and those kinds of things. Um, you might be able to, I, I imagine so. Uh, I haven't looked at that one specifically myself, but if Google is implementing, in this case, captures based off of the IP address where the request came from, and, and that does tend to be fairly typical. Um, having okay. a lot of IP addresses, so say proxy cannon, um, would likely bypass that. I would be careful about terms of use and service, though, because uh, you might be breaking <laughs> some of those if you are. Uh, be you careful. Know. Be careful. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, that might work very well. Um, and then another question from um, Bob. Well, actually, Daniel said, how does this work with SAM SSO? Uh, single sign-on. Hmm. I've not played with that. Uh, if you've got it integrated with Gmail, hmm, it shouldn't actually affect it. Um, because just because single sign-on is enabled doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the regular sign-in system isn't still there. 
Uh, so I imagine it would still work. With single sign-on, one of the things that you're avoiding is the user having to type in their password over and over again, which could cause it to be exposed. But we're not actually intercepting any of the user's traffic with, this, with these kind of techniques. We're just working with the, uh, the authentication system itself. So if that authentication system is still available, and I imagine in the case of Google that um, accounts at google.com is still going to be available. Um, if it is, then these techniques will absolutely still work for user enumeration and password guessing as well. And here's the uh, invoke password spray Gmail, uh, which is the other function that comes with the new version of, uh, of MailSniper. And at the bottom of the screen there, you see kind of the command uh, to run that. So invoke password spray Gmail, user list, um, and then here you can try a password like fall 2016 or uh, summer 2018 is a great one right now. This is also multi-threaded. So what it'll do is it sets up a bunch of just jobs in PowerShell. And so you can tell it to have 15 of them going at the same time. This will allow you to guess passwords a lot more quickly. Um, it'll also let you do this with the, um, uh, the proxy hosts. So if you have multiple threads, the threads will still rotate for each one of those uh, proxies. But again, uh, the proxy host is one way to do this. You could also do it with um, proxy can and proxy can works just fine too. Um, so the other side of this equation though, now that we've kind of abused G Suites a little bit, use it to be able to identify what user accounts are there, maybe do password guessing against them as well. The other side of it though is we needed a list in the first place to start doing this password guessing. One of the ways we most commonly get a list of users is we'll go to LinkedIn and maybe look at the, uh, the company's page on LinkedIn and see all the employees that are there. There's a tool called ReconNG and the link to it's on the, uh, on the screen as well. And what this will do if you give it the LinkedIn API key is it'll pull down a list of all the employees that it thinks belong to the company. Now this just gives you first and last names. But if you really think about it though, in email that's generally speaking for most organizations, all that we need, the email address is gonna be some combination of a first name and a last name. At Black Hills, uh, majority of us have just the first name as the uh, the email. Um, it might be it might be an abbreviated first name too. So like my name is Matthew, but my email account is actually just Matt at uh, Black Hills InfoSec. Um, so there's a couple little tweaks that you might need to do if you're getting this list from Recon and G via LinkedIn. That's not a bad place to start. And then we can try to turn those into email addresses uh, by matching whatever the formula is for that organization's email format, and then use MailSniper to guess to see which ones are valid. Now, the other side of it is we don't just need first and last names. We also need email format. We can normally get this by finding a single email address. So in this case, uh, you kind of know Black Hills' format. Uh, it's going to be first name because you've seen my email address. A cheat code to do this while well, penetration testing is, uh, generally speaking, when you're working with a customer on an engagement, um, in scoping and rules of engagement, you've probably sent emails back and forth. So you might just take a look at the email and see what your POC's email address is. And now you know the email format. Uh, cheating, but you could do that. Another way that we often will do this is we'll do Google dorking, uh, Google hacking essentially, in order to find files that are stored on the domain of the organization. So you might look for PowerPoints that are on the, uh, the company's website or on some other uh, resource the company has. Uh, we might look at uh, say monster.com and pull down resumes because resumes might be PDF. And if we look at these, oftentimes in the metadata for these files, the directory where the file was saved to is in the metadata. And if we take a look at, say, a directory, so here's PowerShell, you can see very quickly what my user account is um, because it's in the directory. If something's been saved in my home folder or my documents folder, it's right there. 
And for many users on corporate environments, the username for their user account when they log in is often the same format wise as the email address that they use too. So when I was in the Air Force, my uh, user, actually my user directory was a number because we switched to the number uh, sequence. Uh, what you might've seen is Matthew.Tusang as, uh, as the user folder. In which case, just finding the user or just finding a file that happens to have this very simple metadata might give us access to a user or an email address. And with a single email address, we now know the format to start making all of the rest of them out of. You can also just do some Googling around to see if you can find an email address for the user, uh, the resumes and uh, say uh, employee and employment things, uh, say monster.com. They generally also give you some way to reach the organization, which might be the email address of somebody in HR or something like that. So it's, it tends to be pretty easy to in some way, shape or form, find an email address for a user somewhere. And if we find one, we can try to build all of the rest. And that's the other way you can do this. So the first method is using something like uh, Recon NG to go through a DIN or doing some other kind of uh, reconnaissance on the external side in order to find these email addresses to then use something like MailSniper to validate that they're real and then do password guessing attacks against them. But the other way we could do this is we could just build a list. Say we know the email format. In the case of Black Hills, it's just first name. Uh, they tend to be any of a couple different types. Um, first initial and then last name, first name dot last name, and uh, first name tend to be the most common ones. And we could just build a list of all first names and all last names that are really common, put them together, and now we've got our own list. And so a quick way to do that, we can do it with a little PowerShell one-liner here like you see on the screen. And what this will do is allow you to create um, a file full of email addresses according to whatever format you're looking for. There's also a little PowerShell script that I put together that's at that uh, GitHub link, and I'll try to do this for you automatically. That GitHub repo, incidentally, has uh, two files, one's first names and the other one's last names. And in the first names file, it has the top 1,000 girl and boy names over the past, uh, I think it's 50 years, based on census data here in the United States. The other file is last names, and that is the top 1,000 most common surnames here in the United States. So we've got a lot of people listening in from overseas. You may wanna find your own census data that's a little bit more appropriate for whatever the organization is that you're testing uh, or more locally. But this is generally how I, I created that, um, that list. If you use that with uh, the tool, it'll essentially take all of the first names and all of the last names and it'll mangle them associated to uh, whatever format it is that you're trying to create a user lane list for. Do be advised that this will create an extremely long file and the, um, uh, the string operations that PowerShell's doing aren't particularly efficient. So if it looks like it's hanging, it's just working really hard. And uh, it might take like 90% of your CPU for an hour while it works too. PowerShell, can't have everything. It is an easy thing to uh, develop in as you can kind of see by those quick one-liners that can do all kinds of gnarly stuff. And that kind of brings us to the end of the, um, the webcast. And now a couple things to note here about Mail Sniper. Um, Bo Bullock, he's the author of Mail Sniper. He's on vacation right now. So the updates that I put into Mail Sniper haven't been pulled into the repository yet. Uh, so the primary repo is the second list of the second link here on the screen right now. But if you want to find Mail Sniper for G Suite, for now, it only exists on my GitHub, so it's that top link. Uh, in a little while, though, as soon as Bo, I imagine, gets back from uh, vacation, he'll pull it, and then you'll see it there. The email generator tool is also on the link uh, right below that, and uh, putting those kind of things together does tend to make something uh, a little special. 
And if anything doesn't work for you or you've got questions on it, I'm, I'm happy to chat with you. And that's my email address as we kind of saw the demo too. Um, so I'm gonna open it up for questions now. Um, we have kind of not a necessarily super related question, but it's related um, from Kyle. He said, do you have any tool recommendations for extracting the metadata from files like Word docs, PDFs, et cetera? Absolutely. My preferred tool for this is Exif tool. Uh, you may also want to look for string data inside of uh, files, especially docs and such. There's a tool called Strings that can do this. Uh, Exif tool is a, a Unix utility. I think there might be an Exif tool.exe that's been ported to Windows, but I'm not sure about that. Um, it is a really nifty tool, though, and uh, it'll pull out the metadata. It's my preferred one. It's a command line tool. There are some non-command line options as well. Um, there is a tool called FOCA, and FOCA can do this. It's a GUI-based tool that runs on Windows. It is, um, clunky is not the right word, um, heavy, if you will, because it uses SQL Express, and it requires all those things to be installed as dependencies, uh, which is one of the reasons why I personally prefer the, uh, the lighter command line utility exit tool. Um, another tool that's decent is NZNL, I think is what it's called. It's, it's by New Zealand. And um, uh, it's also got a graphical user interface that'll pull uh, uh, metadata out, but it's very light and it's uh, it's just quick and easy to use. Uh, as far as GUI tools or Windows tools for metadata, uh, that's actually my preferred one between it and FOCA. Uh, the other side of it is if you're looking for ASCII strings or characters, in interesting information inside of um, say packed file formats like a PDF or a document, uh, strings is a good utility for that as well. It comes default installed on most Linux systems, and the command is just strings, plural with an S. Uh, but you can also get a version for it on Windows. It's part of the SysInternals toolkit, uh, so you can buy, you can get it straight off of Microsoft's website. And having the ability to use strings on Windows is really nice too. Um, it's in fact my preferred way to look at binary formatted data, including weird things like PCAP data. Why use Wireshark when you've got strings? Um, Derek Banks. Um, one of our other testers also recommended Kyle um, Power Meta, which Bo apparently oh, wrote yeah. as well. Was, and that's also what Derek uses. So, so oh, man, we have I a lot of tools. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, we like to recommend our own tools and the tools that you guys build, but we also like mm -hmm. are open to other cool things. So, I mean, obviously we're biased. The part about that is um, uh, we have a whole metadata section in the SEC 460 course. It's the one that I wrote for SANS. And uh, we use Power Meta in the course, so nice. <laughs> I really ought to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, it happens. Um, and Daniel said he has an SSO issue with super admins. It's annoying. Have to enforce MFA differently on those accounts. Um, more, more of a comment, but yes. Um, and then Akeen, I hope I said that right, said, can you share the link to these tools that you've mentioned? Um, yes, if um, I would like more on it. Can right here you can still see that is that right yeah, yeah i don't have the live link um samson says great presentation matt from a blue team perspective is there any tool that would alert you to multiple login attempts from different ips in a short period of time and what sans course do you teach i don't know if i know a tool by name um and it, it depends on the configuration i'm not 100 percent familiar with uh with g suite on the back end side from a blue team perspective but i imagine there's some amount of logging you can get I also know you can integrate it directly with your domain, which will allow you to do things like lockout and disabling of uh, accounts. Um, if you've got that in place, and you see this a lot with OWA and EWS, if you've got that in place, you can use the standard built-in Windows uh, uh, logging systems in order to get that information. 
And uh, if you've got, say, a, a vent log forwarder that's sending things to your SIM or uh, whatever system it is that you use to, to view the, the information, dear Lord, tell me it's not ArcSight. I had to work with that far too much in the military. Ouch. Um, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel must be doing blue team on Google because he also said use Google APIs um, and Google Audit Tool. Those are um, useful. So thank you, Daniel, for that. And then as far as SANS goes, I teach the 560 course. That's the uh, SANS penetration testing course. And then I wrote the 460 course, uh, which I have not yet taught because it comes out for the first time here in uh, in July. I mean, I guess I technically taught some of the pieces during the betas, but. <laughs> um, and here's another question from Kevin. So he says, sorry, it's somewhat off topic, but OWA and EWS were both mentioned. Is Mail Sniper effective against Office 365? Yes. So, so with, with Office 365 and, and OI and a lot of the integrations we're seeing with organizations today, it's actually all one authentication system and it's all just the same. Um, so generally speaking, you can guess against um, OI, EWS via Microsoft's account system um, because what it's doing is, is making those standard API requests, just like you kind of see here with, uh, with G Suite. Um, but it's doing them kind of transparently to you because um, the authentication for a lot of these systems tend to happen actually on their end. This isn't true of EWS, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, for, for a lot of Office 365 implementations, it is. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mail Sniper supports it too. Okay, cool. Um, and there was also a question from Jose. It was kind of more of a comment, but he was wondering, like, we have talked about G Suites, but it seemed like you were focused more on Gmail. Um, but I mean, that's just because you have to have a Gmail account or like a hosted Gmail account to use a G Suite. So basically once you have that email, like. Yeah, so so it does actually bring a pretty good distinction though. Um, I did all this testing against Gmail via accounts.google.com, mm -hmm. but it's actually not, I mean, it is technically Gmail, but it's also uh, with G Suite, essentially the difference that you have is with Gmail, it's personal accounts. Right. But an organization can also have, uh, say, hosted Gmail. It's still, right. it's still essentially Google, and it's still actually in the back end completely Gmail. Uh, but when we're doing it for, say, enterprise customers, if they're using Google as the back end for that, um, Gmail might be where their email is happening, but it's actually G Suite is what Google calls that. Um, so that, that's really just the distinction there. Uh, okay. The account that Google.com is also used to uh, to authenticate to all of G Suite's applications. So if you were trying to log into Google Drive or Google Docs or Photos, uh, heck, even Google Plus, that's actually all happening at accounts.google.com um, uh, API. And that's still true even if you're using hosted Google um, like we do here at Black Hills with G Suite. It's all actually the same system. Technically, accounts.google.com isn't Gmail, but um, that's how we tend to associate it in our minds because whenever you're logging in, that's where you go to log into your email. Um, Edward had another question for you, Matt. Are there, do you have any ideas how long Microsoft will allow PS scripts or any other that can be used against their infrastructure to be hosted in GitHub? That is a good question. That is a good question. Um, <laughs> wow, somebody just like throw a fire at it right there. Um, yeah, GitHub being acquired by Microsoft is really the subtext here uh, since, what was it, $7 billion or something like that? So much money. Yeah, but. Um, the primary location for all these pen test tools, I mean, as you can see it right here with the code repos on the screen right there, they're all in GitHub. Um, and these tools, let's see, all of them, yeah, all of them do affect not just Google, but they affect Microsoft. 
So yeah. what's Microsoft's incentive to allow us to continue to post and publicly release on their stuff, mind you, uh, stuff that breaks their stuff. And there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I expect that that will not change. I think Microsoft's gonna continue to allow us free reign with GitHub. I think they'd be afraid of the blowback. Um, and I've, I've also, I've liked a lot of the things I've seen out of Microsoft for the past couple of years, uh, now that we don't have Bomber anymore. Um, if this was Oracle, I would rescind my previous statement. Uh, it's really organizational and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a corporate environment kind of thing. Uh, the answer to that question that is, I think the Microsoft that we have today won't do anything like that. Uh, but that said, I have seen a, a number of penetration testers immediately pull chocks and uh, ditch GitHub and move off to um, uh, GitLab or something else like that. Uh, at Black Hills, we use GitLab. But um, I don't expect Microsoft to shut down things, but I could see them trying to do some kinds of analytics against things to automatically block them as they're being developed and as they're being created. Uh, kind of like virus total, right? Um, so a decent way to get malware into an environment, especially when it's got whitelisting and stuff in place, is to upload it to GitHub, GitHub and then browse to it from the environment that's locked down and download it because it's HTTPS and uh, GitHub is normally in the whitelist, so you can do that. Um, with VirusTotal, when we're doing malware and stuff, we generally don't want to upload it because VirusTotal is going to submit that, that signature, that, that, uh, that thing, to all of the antivirus vendors. And in the middle of your pen test, suddenly your zero-day malware is now being popped by all the AV. Um, I could see Microsoft trying to put some kind of uh, analytic-based defensive solution into the fabric of GitHub. Um, but I don't see them breaking or removing functionality because I think they're afraid of the blowback there. And this is, of course, cool. completely conjecture. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Deep in the mind of Microsoft, Matt. Uh, cool. Well, um, it doesn't look like you have any more questions. So thank you guys for being on. And if you have anything that we didn't get to or you think of something later, go ahead and email me, sierra at bhas.co, and I can forward it on to Matt. And we will get this recording ready and posted early next week. So check out our YouTube channel and also our blog. Um, and you are welcome, Raphael. Thank you for being on, everybody. And thanks to the few people we had on that were the first time. Thank you for being here. And um, thank you, Matt, for giving the presentation. It was awesome. And we will talk to you guys all later. Have a great afternoon. And go enjoy your Taco Tuesday. Bye. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.